0: They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights. Our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a
1: purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them
0: up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind.
1: We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of America liberty. Ideas spread. They can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Decentralized Revolution. I'm Aaron and I'm your host. One more short reminder about the Mises Pack money bomb coming up on Thursday, August 20th. We picked that date to honor Ron Paul's 85th birthday. And we'll be doing several live streams on our social media uh, platforms beginning at noon Eastern and up until around 10 p.m. or so that evening with uh, guests, including Tom Woods, Dave Smith, Scott Horton, Maj Touré, and a few others. It will be uh, a great time. And uh, what we're doing is uh, trying to get more support for Mises Pack. and uh, as a inducement for you to um, stop putting it off. We're giving away an AR15 rifle along with some Mises silver silver rounds. I'll tell you how to get registered in just a second. Um, our goal is to get at least 500 recurring monthly donors to Mises pack, which is that's how we can afford to help great local libertarian candidates as well as intraparty activism within the libertarian party. And, of course, issues coalitions that promote decentralization. We've already given $1,500 each to Kalish Morrow, uh, who's running for city council in Hanford, California, and to Marcus Marrero and Andre Class for their county commission races down in Florida. And we want to be able to get that number up from three to around 10 or so. So we want to get five, six, seven, eight more uh, $1,500 contributions to good, strong, local libertarian candidates in possibly winnable races. But it all depends on what we get, uh, what kind of support we get from you and whether we get to this next level of monthly financial support. We now have, uh, about 350, 375 recurring monthly donors. I haven't talked to Mike, uh, recently to get the exact number, Uh, So we're trying to grab uh, about 125 or 150 more recurring monthly donors between now and uh, August 20th. Now, if you're a current monthly donor, you're already entered into the door prize drawing. So you don't have to do anything. Just keep your uh, monthly gift current. For everyone else, there's two ways to enter. One, you can become a recurring monthly donor yourself. Between now and the evening of August 20th, I think we're doing the the draw at at 8 or 9 p.m. So before then, uh, or you can just sign up for the drawing if you can't contribute right now. I, I think we legally have to offer that option according to the FEC uh, to be allow people to register uh, as a, to win as a non-contributor. But of course, we really understand that this year has hit some of us pretty hard financially. And we want to try to do our best to uh, serve all of our supporters, all the members of our family, uh, whether you're currently supporting us financially, because we know many of you support us uh, in other ways, through your activism, through telling people about us, and we appreciate that. So uh, you can uh, do either of those things by going to lpmesiscaucus.com moneybomb. So lpmisescaucus.com slash moneybomb. Go there today and you can just register to win or you can register to win by becoming a recurring monthly donor. Even if it's five bucks a month, uh, we appreciate that. We've got tons and tons of $5 a month uh, contributors already. We've got a couple who do at least a couple hundred, if not a few hundred uh, a month, and we appreciate those. And we, of course, appreciate everyone in between. So whatever you can do right now, uh, go to that website. If that address is too hard to remember, if you're in the car or something, you can probably remember takehumanaction.com. That'll get you to the website. Look for Money Bomb in the menu along the top of the page. So my my guest today is the first repeat guest on Decentralized Revolution, other than our fearless leader, Michael Heiss. And that's no surprise given our connections to the Tenth Amendment Center, where he's a communications director. He's also the managing editor of the Shift Gold website, and he runs his own site and podcast called Godarchy, which you can visit at godarchy.org. Uh, which we we didn't get into that uh, part of his work on his last appearance very much, uh, so we were able to this time. Of course, I'm talking about Mike Meharry, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mike Meharry, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Hey, thanks for having me. You are, I think, the first repeat guest uh, here on Decentralized Revolution, besides Michael Heiss, who's been on three or four times, didn't uh, count. maybe. Yeah, he, he's uh, he's uh, a special case that one.
1: <laughs> yes, he is.
0: Um, but no, it's a it's a pleasure to have you back on. There was a, I think, some discussion in the Mises Caucus Facebook group about a couple of uh, things um, that I wanted to cover today. Um, before I do that, I want to you um, uh, a post from you earlier today on Facebook. I think uh, this month marks my 11 year anniversary at the 10th Amendment Center. In that time, I've written 3,210 articles slash blog posts. That's a lot. I <laughs>
1: know it's insane. Uh, when I first started, there was a guy that worked with this named Bryce Shanka, <clears throat> and uh, he was actually kind of one of the one of the founding figures. Well, not founding figures, but he was there, you know, before I. And uh, he dubbed me the machine because I I have the ability to crank out a lot of content in in relatively short amount of time. But yeah, it's a, you know, looking back, I I was just writing a post for our members and um, it's, it's kind of crazy looking back over 11 years, a lot has changed, uh, particularly in my own life and my own political views. Uh, When I went into the 10th amendment center, I was pretty much your kind of run of the mill Republican neocon and uh, you know, through through the work and the exposure to different people that that i've gotten to know over the last 11 years i've evolved into an ANCAP. so
0: that that's uh that's great uh what tips well how how do you that's almost like uh one article per every weekday uh, i kind of averaged it out what's your um what's your secret
1: i don't really have one i mean to be honest i, I mean part of it quite frankly i think is just god-given ability you know I, i'm i'm just my brain works that way where i can put t- put together thoughts in a pretty quick way uh i did went to journalism school and that actually really helped a lot i mean y- you'd learn how to write under deadline in yep. the in the journalism world and uh and then i spent actually five years working at a local tv station for the uh for their news website and again you know it was basically writing breaking news and stuff so you just kind of you just kind of learned to do it and I mean, you know, I, I have the. Uh, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I can get paid to write. So, yeah. you know, I don't have. Uh, for a lot of people, I know it's so hard because they work all day and then they're coming home and they're wanting to do a blog post or write a book. You know, and it's it's hard. So, I'm I'm in a pretty lucky position in in that. Yeah, you know, people were willing to give me money to write stuff. So,
0: speaking of uh, deadlines, I I went to journalism school too and used to be a newspaper reporter. And I See, can write anything of any length about anything on deadline. But if I don't have a deadline, I can't do any, <laughs> I, I'm, I, I just, uh, I'm, I'm the worst procrastinator. So I need to, uh, somehow trick myself into accepting internal deadlines, but, yeah.
1: uh, I've got Michael Bolden breathing down my neck. So that,
0: yeah, <laughs> I guess that helps too. That, that's um, not he,
1: he really doesn't. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty self-motivated, but, um, it, I mean, it does, it does help, you know, the, again, having, having a, uh, being your job that right. kind of changes the dynamics a little bit. It's a lot, it's a lot easier to get motivated, to get up and right. When you know that, well, if I don't, then, uh, I'm not going to get paid and then, you know, I can't pay my rent.
0: <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, I want to talk about a couple of recent articles, uh, you've written. One of them was on the 10th amendment center, uh, blog, I think, uh, it's called the the title is Status Report: Sound Money in the States. And here at the Mises Caucus, we're all about decentralization, and uh, kind of uh, I I like to put it as pitting state and local governments and national the national government kind of against each other and trying to get them to assert their uh, the lower levels to d- to assert themselves against the higher levels. Uh, what there there's three uh, headings uh, in that. Uh, the first one is repeal taxes on sound money. What uh, what would that do?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, that, that's such a simple thing, but a lot of states still tax gold and silver transactions. So, you know, if you if you buy gold and then sell it later on, uh, and you sell it at a you know the the price is higher, then you you get taxed on that. It's capital gains tax. Uh, and then a lot of states or not a lot, but a few states actually still have sales tax on gold and silver. So, you know, it's it's basically a commodity. And I've used this analogy before. You know, imagine if you went into the bank and you had a dollar bill and you said, hey, I need four quarters. And, you know, they charged you 10 cents to to break that one dollar bill. In essence, that's what these taxes are doing. I mean, gold and silver are money and you shouldn't tax money to quote Ron Paul. and so this is a barrier for people who want to use gold and silver in transactions and you know there's some movement towards doing that with the uh, availability of electronic platforms it becomes possible to <clears throat> have an account denominated in say gold and, and actually have a credit card or a debit card that's attached to that account where you can transact business in in fractions of gold or silver uh, that becomes difficult when you put the taxes into the equation, because technically, if you spend your gold uh, and and you're and you're spending it for a value that's higher than what you originally got it for, you, you technically should be taxed on that. And then, if you have a sales tax, of course, you you know that's a barrier of entry to buying precious metals to begin with. So, uh, it's a very basic first step toward uh, allowing currency competition. Uh, is to get rid of those taxes so that we can uh, create these these infrastructures that make it possible to transact business in actual sound money instead of the <clears throat> excuse me Federal Reserve's uh, fiat.
0: One one thing that I, I've seen uh, mentioned before that I don't think you explicitly mentioned uh, in this article that kind of goes along with repealing the taxes is, and I don't know much about this, but uh, you know legal tender laws like allowing gold and silver. To be named, isn't that like basically letting it, uh, it enforceability of contracts that are right. done in gold and silver is that it?
1: Yeah. And actually, there are uh, I think three states that have actually done that, Utah, Oklahoma, and Arizona, maybe. okay. um and, and so yeah, basically what it does is is it it's it's kind of a government thing. Yep. and it makes gold and silver legal tender. It explicitly says that if you want to pay your taxes in gold or silver bullion, you can do that. Um, So just like fiat. Um, And so it basically raises the status of gold and silver to money, which is what it actually is. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a legal thing, but it does open up doors. So to give you a practical example, uh, Utah was the first state to make gold and silver legal tender. It was also the first state to have a company that uh, explicitly, uh, Created a mechanism to uh, do business in gold and silver. It's called United Precious Metals Association. I think is what UPMA, and uh, and you can actually open an account there, and, and you can buy, you know deposit denominations of gold, and you can actually utilize uh, debit cards in order to transact business. That was made possible because Utah uh, took that step to uh bring gold and silver to the status of sound money and with that comes the elimination of taxes because obviously if you're using uh gold and silver then then it can't be taxed anymore so that's kind of a package deal and it's kind of a a, a ethereal obtuse thing that's kind of hard to wrap your head around but it is an extremely important step that can be taken and you know uh, they say that one of the reasons that you know dollars Uh, Have the status that they do, or any government fiat is because the government requires that taxes be paid in that uh, fiat currency. So it gives it, you know, automatic demand. You have to have dollars to pay your taxes. Right. Uh, So this just, again, it's creating currency competition. And that's really the key here. You know, um, Ron Paul did us a great service by bringing the Federal Reserve kind of into public thought, you know, with the whole in the Fed. Uh, and, And then we've had, you know, there's been a push ever since really to even audit the Fed, but you just can't get any momentum with the mainstream on that. So taking it down to the state and local level creates an opportunity to create currency competition. And the idea is that eventually if enough people realize that their fiat currency is devaluing and that it's worthless, that they'll actually want to switch to a a more stable sound money. So gold and silver, that option. And of course, cryptocurrency is also in that equation as well.
0: Yeah. uh, Crypto is the third bullet point. The second bullet point in your article was gold bullion depositories. Explain how that could work.
1: Yeah. So Texas actually has a gold bullion depository. It's a state depository. And and one of the reasons they actually built it is because the state of Texas owns gold. Uh, Their uh, university system actually invested in precious metals and it's uh, apparently stored in New York City. And so creating gold bullion depository, one of the rationales was, is we can bring our gold back to Texas, Um, which which again, you know, you think about it when you think about the idea of state sovereignty and, uh, you know, when, when you think of a state actually being able to practically secede, Texas is one of the first that comes to mind because it's so big. It has such a huge economy, and it also has gold, which is a uh, a beautiful thing for a sound money system. So that was one of the rationales. But another thing that this depository uh, does is it's open to the public. And again, like that United Precious Metals, which is a private entity, the uh, Gold Napoleon Depository in Texas is eventually uh, supposed to create this mechanism to transact business in gold and silver. So um, kind of a, a dual dual purpose there, uh, allowing the state to have its own uh, real money and uh, to sol- solidify the state finances, but then also to allow people the opportunity to engage in commerce with a, a different type of currency, different yep. type of money.
0: And of course, another different type of money is crypto. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can states do, and and what's what's being done to popularize and uh, uh, make that an alternative?
1: Yeah, so Wyoming is really the leader in this. They've they've kind of, which is weird, you know. You think Wyoming is the cryptocurrency capital of the U.S., but they have really done a lot in terms of trying to create a, a legal environment that is friendly to blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, they've done a number of things and, and a lot of it, again, is is kind of obtuse legal banking kind of things. But in a nutshell, what they're doing is they're is they're trying to take the barriers down from utilizing cryptocurrency. Uh, you know, there's been some things to uh, to eliminate taxation and to uh, ensure that uh, the, the cryptocurrencies can be traded, that, that it's legitimate within the banking system and just kind of putting it on par with uh, with other types of money. So uh, again, it's it's all about creating this legal environment that m- makes it easier to utilize it for the average person. And you know, from there, the key is it's up to us. Uh you know, we can do all these things at the government level that we want to, but ultimately people have to decide that they want to utilize these various uh various options and to truly create currency competition is really going to require individual human action to to kind of jump on the term that you guys use a lot.
0: Right, right. Uh, One thing, I I saw an article a couple of weeks ago, and I I won't get the headline exactly right, but it said uh, uh, gold is now at an all-time high. Experts don't know why basically (laughs) uh and and i remember i posted that to the mises uh caucus facebook page and we all gotta laugh yeah uh, about that
1: experts are clueless it's amazing i was i was reading an article today so you know people people who may not follow precious metals closely uh two weeks ago it broke its all-time record which at the time was around 1920 an ounce uh, it quickly has gone over $2,000 an ounce and, and uh, is, is rapidly approaching $2,100. So we've, we've seen this huge uh, increase in the price of gold over the last three or four weeks. But this has been, I mean, this has been going on. We've been in a pretty much a bull market in gold since about 2015. Uh, right. A lot of people aren't aware of this, but I, I read this article on CNBC this morning, and it was like, well, you know, gold is up, but it may not stay there if we get a coronavirus vaccine. You know, it's it's as if everything began and ended with coronavirus, yeah. uh, which is which is absurd The the reason that the, the price of gold is going. up, I, I used this example the other day in a little video I did. The reason that the price of gold is going up is, is the, it's the value of the dollar is going down. Yeah. You know, we've, we've had uh, unprecedented uh, increase in the money supply and so we're seeing this reflected in rising prices it's a rising price of gold it's the rising price of the stock market my wife goes to the grocery store she's complaining about rising prices there so this is a uh, this is all a function of uh, the fiat currency and the m- manipulation of the central bank
0: yeah and it's really unprecedented what they've done here in the last 4 or 5 months right
1: yeah, yeah Oh, absolutely i mean it just you know we thought we thought t- 2008 was unprecedented and it just absolutely pales in comparison
0: yeah. It's, uh, I, I really fear for, um, the economy and, and on into, you know, people's, um, really their well being, their mental health and their, um, uh, how they, uh, live life. Uh, because I think a lot of people are going to end up, more people are going to end up losing their jobs. I think inflation is probably going to come. Yeah. And, um, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm I'm not optimistic about that, but I, I think that's where we're headed.
1: Yeah, I agree with you completely. Yeah.
0: Um, another article uh is just a few days ago, I think, um, that you wrote. It's entitled, Should Libertarians work with commies and fascists? <laughs> uh you had those two terms in quotes. And uh well, I'll let you explain that to people.
1: Yeah, this was my response kind of to This is an ongoing frustration for me, to be honest, in in the the quote-unquote liberty movement. Um, There are a lot of people that are really, really good at philosophy and really, really bad at political strategy. And I've seen this a lot with the whole, uh, you know, the the Black Lives Matter and all the things that have happened uh, over the last several months with the protests and whatnot. And I see a lot of folks that... Um, don't recognize the opportunity that this actually is because they see BLM as a Marxist you know, movement. And it is, I'm not going to deny that. But the fact of the matter is we can work with folks that don't agree with our big philosophy in order to do strategically things that will uh, open up doors to bring us closer to liberty. And uh, just in the last like, say, six weeks or so. We've seen, uh, I believe, four municipalities ban facial recognition technology. Um, Two or three cities have um, made moves to limit police militarization. Uh, The state of Colorado has uh, created a state process that uh, will hopefully allow people to uh, hold police officers accountable for Violating people's rights uh, without having to run into this cr- crazy qualified immunity uh, defense that is prevalent at the federal level. Um, and we've seen New York City actually create a policy of transparency for their surveillance programs. These are things that we've been pushing for at the 10th Amendment Center ever since I've been there. For, so, you know, going beyond 11 years. And we have momentum to do these things now because a lot of people on the left are p- paying attention. And so the article, really, the, the whole fascist and commie thing was kind of tongue in cheek because that's the you know, that's the uh, the kind of hyperbole we want to use with the with the side we don't agree with. You know, if we're if we're on the right, then everybody on the left is a, a commie. And if we're on the left, everybody on the right is a fascist. Um, but it was re- the article is really just focusing on the importance of and the value of single issue coalitions that we can work with people on the left or the right to do things that will advance liberty and that doesn't mean that we have to um you know embrace their their overall cause or agree with their philosophy or agree with anything else that they're doing it's it, and i'm talking about very specific uh, uh tactical strategic single issue things that we can push forward and i think that's important and you guys have done a good job with that over at the mises caucus with uh you know the the push for legalizing mushrooms. Yep. Um, this is a this is a thing that you're gonna find a lot of support on the left. You're probably not gonna find a lot of support on the, you know, the traditional right for something like that because oh my God, it's drugs. Right. So, you know, we have to pick our battles. We are a an extreme minority movement. And people, yep. I think we forget this. You know, we get in our in our libertarian circles and and we hang out together and we talk to each other. And I think it gives us the illusion that we're bigger than we are. Go talk to your regular friends. They have no clue what you're talking about when you start talking about libertarianism or the nap or any of this stuff. And you know, I, I joke. There's about 30 of us, and and we have 22 different coalition or 22 different uh, factions. Right. Um, and, and we have to, if we want to do anything within the political sphere, we're going to have to coalition and work with with the people in the mainstream to get things done. We just have to because we don't have the numbers to push things forward by ourselves. So I think coalition building is important. It's also important to maintain our principles and talk about those things. And I don't want, to, don't want to diminish that. We don't sell out or compromise, but we can work with other people.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. And one good example is we tend to, libertarians, at least for the last 20 years, as far as I can tell, we don't really mind working with the right on guns, right. Uh, even though they're bad on war and yeah, exactly. Uh, are there, are there I made that point. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that, and that's what we're trying to do. Uh, and uh, we're also, I think one thing, the Mises caucus, uh, we're one of our goals in the next year, year and a half, is to get um, some uh, second amendment protection legislation passed at, at the local level. Uh, I think, I think we're going to focus on Texas. Or, yeah. Great um, place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the big reason I wanted to have you on, uh, was, uh, just a discussion that kind of, uh, bubbled up about, uh, and Michael Heiss and I had kind of talked about it, um, before, uh, about the whole interaction between, uh, Christianity and libertarianism. And, uh, you're a, a good guy to talk to about that because, uh, of, uh, one thing that you do in addition to, the other places you write for, you have uh, godarchy.org, separation mm-hmm. of state and church. Uh, tell us uh, tell us what that is and how—I've um, got a bunch of questions on this, so uh, uh, give, give me your first impressions on how Christianity and, and liberty can go together.
1: Okay, so this is kind of a side project. I started the website, gosh— I don't even remember. It's, it's been probably f- three, four years ago. And and part of it was just my own personal political evolution. Um, you know, I, I was typical, I think of a lot of people where a lot of my life was compartmentalized. So I, I had my political views and then I had my, uh, some social views and I had some religious views and uh, over the last really 10 years, I've really been trying to create a more cohesive view of the world, uh, You know, recognizing that my my personal philosophy was somewhat fragmented and, and disconnected. And so Godarchy was part of that. I've been a Christian since I was 18 years old. Um, I, I fell away for a while, but you know, basically speaking. And, and as, as my faith is one of the most important things in my life, it needs to be congruent with my political views. And as I started to explore that, I realized that really libertarianism, I believe, is the best uh, political expression of Christianity um, in that, and especially at the extremes of uh, recognizing that the state is morally and ethically illegitimate. Um, and... You know, we can get into some of the theolo- theological aspects of that if you want to. Um, but, you know, the the simplest way, I think that the, where the two things really meet that I think is really obvious is the great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself um, <clears throat> is really just another way of expressing the non-aggression principle. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, those two ideas are the same. You don't you don't hit your neighbor. Uh, if you don't want your neighbor to hit you. Uh, you don't take things from your neighbor that don't belong to you. Uh, And and so those two things are just completely compatible to me. And um, so I started Godarchy. I actually started it more than anything is, uh, was I really wanted to create an anti-war voice within the Christian community because that is sorely lacking today, which, which grieves my heart. Um, You know, to to watch people who profess to follow the Prince of Peace, uh, clamor for war is, is disheartening. So that was kind of the beginning of it. And then it, then it started to become a sketch pad for me to uh, start outlining and, and kind of reconciling my politics and my, my faith. And um, about a year and a half ago, I started a podcast. So there's the Godarchy podcast. And um, I interview a lot of people. I've interviewed Tom Woods and Michael Bolden, and I've interviewed the, the folks that run the uh, the Muslims for Liberty and just try to kind of bring all kinds of different perspectives in, uh, that that talk about anti-war libertarianism, anarchism, and and Christian faith. So,
0: right, I, I'm a Christian myself, and I I would have explained things uh, why I think libertarianism and Christianity go together pretty much the same way you did. But one thing, uh, when you talk to people, uh, often it's um, if I'm talking to a Christian who's not a libertarian, they bring this up, and often when I've talked to, I, I've done this less often, but non-Christian libertarians will say ah, it's not compatible. And they both point at things like Romans 13 of and, and there's <laughs> things in the new Testament that um, uh, if you just look at the one verse and, and don't understand context uh, can be, can sound pretty statist. Um, so tell how should we look at some of those, um, uh, passages? Um, and, and, uh, what are, what are so many people, uh, missing that, that we somehow have, uh, seen?
1: Yeah. You know, Romans 13, of course, that comes up every single time. And then there's some verses in Peter that, that kind of reflect the same, the same point of view. Uh, I think it's important to always contextualize scripture. And you can't take one little, you know, one little set of verses and, and try to create a dogma around that. And and I'll be the first person to tell you, I mean, you know, it, I've been studying the Bible most of my life, and there's a lot of things I don't understand. In, in fact, that was one of the things I had to come to terms with as, as a believer, that we're talking about God, the creator of the universe. My little human mind isn't ever going to comprehend everything about it. So mm-hmm. Uh, I think we have to be be humble. But when you look at something like Romans 13 and and, and kind of the uh, the caricature sketch of those verses is you have to follow government uh, because God ordained government. And so therefore we're obliged to uh, submit to authority is is the, the nutshell of it. And you just all you have to do is look at other aspects of the Bible and you see plenty of places where uh, people that were considered great. Uh, men and women of God defied political authority so obviously it doesn't mean absolute submission and doing whatever the government tells you I mean th- that's not compatible so then we have to start thinking well what what is this saying and and there are a lot of uh, there are more than one good explanation there's some people who believe that uh, Paul was somewhat talking in code uh, there's some folks that believe that um, that he was talking more about uh, a uh, Kind of a religious authority as opposed to literal political authority. I don't think that holds up real well, but that's there. My personal, I uh, the way I view it is that um, God calls us to submit. He doesn't necessarily call it cause call us to obey. Yeah. And I look at somebody like Rosa Parks as an example of of this in action. She submitted to authorities. She did not obey them. She did not go sit in the back of the bus as she was told to do. But when they came and arrested her, she didn't, you know, pull out a gun and shoot the cop. She didn't tear up the bus. She went to jail. And when you look at the development of the early church and the way that it interacted with Rome, it absolutely the the early church was absolutely rebellious against the edicts of Rome. They refused to um, to participate in a lot of the civil cultic activities. They refused to be part of the military. Um, And yet they did not launch a military rebellion against Rome. And so I think that's kind of, to me, is is where that distinction draws. We don't necessarily obey, but there may be con- consequences for that as, to us as believers where we have to deal with persecution. And that's exactly what happened with the early church.
0: Um, I, I thought some other context is, you know, you, you think about uh, what some of the Jewish people wanted out of Jesus. They wanted, a a, a, a rebellion, uh, rebellion yeah. leader, someone to restore the throne of David, uh, like the Maccabees tried to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people were, were, uh, disappointed by that. And I've always seen the, the submit to, uh, the government, uh, kind of the way Jesus did. He was very critical, you know, in the thing about the, you know, whose image is on the coin and, right and things like that. He wasn't, um, he wasn't militant, but he, uh, kind of offered this glimpse of, Hey, maybe there's another way. And I I think it's, I think it's pretty amazing how you go from, uh, something like Romans 13, uh, that is basically submit to this because government is there to, to punish evildoers and things like that. That's a long, maybe, well, it's it, it's dispiriting that so many people, especially on the right in our culture, uh, take that and then become cheerleaders for the military and uh, uh, foreign interventionism and uh you know moral crusades through legislation right um how how do we talk to people who um, might believe that the the Christian who, says, Hey, I I, I like, uh, uh, I like lower taxes and more freedom and things like that, but let's not get out of hand because after all Romans 13, how do we appeal to them?
1: I, one of the most effective things that I found at least to, to make people stop and think is to flip it on them. And I actually wrote an article on the Godarchy website. It's been a couple of years ago. Uh, and it was after one of these evangelists was talking about how, uh, you know, Trump was called by God and he was put in disposition by God and Romans 13 was, was invoked. And I said, okay, if that, if that's the case, then isn't Kim Jong-un also ordained by God are not, uh, the, the people of North Korea obliged to submit to the authority of Kim Jong-un and who are we as Americans to go in and say his, his, uh, uh, rule over North Korea is illegitimate because God put him there, right? Well, if nothing else, you're creating a lot of cognitive dissonance for the, for those folks. Um, because it's true. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to take that literally and we all have to submit, then the U S has absolutely, I mean, you can almost make a, an anti-war case based on Romans 13, because who are we to go in and, and uh, unseat some leader in some other place? Uh, if, if God has put them there for his purposes.
0: And another part of that is is, uh, Romans 12, because there it tells us to allow our minds to be transformed uh, away from the way the world does things to overcome evil with good and not with more evil, more violence. And so that comes right before it says what it says in the early part of Romans 13. But so many people, just like the way they interpret it totally leaves out the setup to to um that uh that passage
1: yeah and you made a key you mentioned a key point you know the the expectation of the jewish people was for a new david and and there was wide expectation that the messiah was going to come and he was going to overthrow rome and he was going to restore israel to that military and political pinnacle that it once had And the whole, Jesus spent an awful lot of time kind of flipping that on its head as he was teaching. And then the the ultimate symbolism is when he rode into uh, Jerusalem on a donkey. And he was taking that messianic imagery and and kind of flipping it. Uh, He wasn't riding in on a mighty white stallion as a military conqueror. He was coming in as as a meek, submissive ruler and yet he was still asserting himself as as a king and as an authority and when you move forward to the crucifixion you know Barabbas uh he was he was actually a zealot he was a revolutionary he was in jail because he had tried to to create some type of uh you know terrorist act or uh to try to instigate some type of rebellion against Rome and and that was a choice for the Jewish people right there do you want the king that God has sent you, who is who is the Prince of Peace, or do you want to try to uh, do this on your own terms and reestablish your political might? And they chose Barabbas; they chose the political way. And you know, some seventy years later, the temple was destroyed. That was not a wise choice for them. Right. And uh, you know, and you see this imagery throughout the the crucifixion and the life of Christ that, that Jesus is a different kind of king, and His kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. And therefore, as believers. Our loyalty is to that kingdom, not to, you know, Washington, D.C. or London or or whatever country you happen to be in. So, you know, and there again, this this dovetails back with the whole idea of, you know, kind of anarcho capitalism, anarchism. Uh, We have we have chosen a different kingdom that is not a kingdom of this world. And so it makes sense that we would uh, reject the the policies and the ethics and the morals of the kingdoms of this world, because I would argue that they are actually controlled by, uh, if you want to, if you want to personify it, the devil or evil forces or however you want to look at it.
0: Yep. And, uh, uh, talking about who's in in charge in in this world is a good way to segue into a thing I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about the, the story about Jesus and the Pharisees, uh, Uh, confronting each other over the issue of taxes and uh, should we pay taxes to Rome? And I've had people, uh, other Christians and other people who know the Bible uh, put that toward me as evidence of, Hey, Jesus said you should basically pay your taxes because that belongs to Caesar. Um, Talk about, is that, is that the correct way to do that and the significance of Caesar's image being on the coin?
1: Yeah, this one I'm not as I, I don't have this in in my head like I do the Romans 13. Ryan Burgett is a friend of mine. He's actually a, a Mennonite pastor, and he wrote a tremendous article on the um, on on the whole episode there. It, basically, they were trying to trap Jesus because it was a no-win situation. I mean, you have to kind of put that into context of what they were trying to do. You know, if he said uh, you are supposed to pay taxes to Caesar, then that lowered his creds as as a good Jewish person because you know, again, this is kind of idolatry. And if he said that uh, that you shouldn't pay taxes, then he's a rebel against Rome and was subjecting himself to being, you know, labeled some kind of dissident. So this was a trap to begin with, and Jesus masterfully pulled himself out of the trap. That's that's the real story there. Nowhere in that story does Jesus legitimize taxation. Um, and you know, yeah, I make the I pay my taxes. Uh, I, I don't pay my taxes because I think it's legitimate. I pay my taxes because there is a gun to my head, um, you know. But but yeah, there is definitely a deeper thing going on about about uh, about power and authority. And uh, and I think Jesus was making that distinction between the uh, the the ruler of this world and the kingdom of this world and and the kingdom of heaven, which are two completely different things. And, um, so Ryan's article does a lot better job and I don't have that information at the tip of my head. So I can't explain that as well as, as he would, but if you go to dot uh, godarchy.org and just Google, uh, render unto Caesar, you'll find that article and it, it, it lays out the arguments really well.
0: And, uh, you know, Jesus making claims to be King of this heavenly kingdom in contrast with, uh, the Roman emperors who uh, I think I have this right, that, uh, a lot of, I think the Roman emperors at that time, once they became emperor, they were deified. They yeah. were, their priesthood, uh, elevated them to the, um, uh, status of, uh, of gods of, you know, sort of low level, uh, gods in the Roman, uh, pantheon and they put their money on the, so the, the Caesar's face on the money is, Caesar and Rome making claim to rule over the world, and mm-hmm. so yeah, right. There, that's that's in direct conflict with what Jesus said he was all about.
1: Yeah, and I think that's you know, I, I interviewed uh, a Cody Cook, and uh, he's a he's a theology student, and uh, it was about, gosh, two or three episodes back on Godarchy, and he actually has written a book outlining uh, the argument that the kingdoms of this world, all of them are under the dominion of Satan. And that to, to put our allegiance with them, basically when we align ourselves with the kingdoms of the world, we are, are aligning ourselves with uh, with the kingdoms of this world, which are, again, the dominion of Satan. And you actually see that uh, in the temptation of Christ early in his ministry when Uh, one of the things that Satan offered him was, you know, I will give you all of these earthly kingdoms. Well, I mean, that wouldn't have been a temptation if those weren't actually Satan's to offer. And so, you know, I I think that you can make a really good argument as a Christian that, that we shouldn't really be involved in, in these kingdom of kingdom of the world affairs at all. Um, Sometimes it even tempts me to be a, uh, you know, to to move into the world of agorism and just forego politics completely. But um, I think it's very important for people to wrap their heads around the fact that, you know, America is not this, uh, this, uh, what, what, how do people put it, you know, the, the, the kingdom on the Hill or the shining light, the beacon or you right. know, a, a nation of a Christian nation. It's not, it's an empire just like Rome was, yeah. and it's going to suffer the faint same fate in the end. So, you know, watch who your allegiance is to. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, and, and I also think that people on our side of things who are, are are Christians and libertarians, it's something that I try to examine myself on is am I, am I more, um uh am i thinking more and doing more about the liberty side of things than i am my relationship with god and you know how can we how should we as as libertarian christians make sure we keep things in the proper perspective
1: yeah i think it's important to i mean i don't think there's a a, a dogmatic answer to that question you know i think we have to kind of search our own uh our own hearts and and kind of just follow the direction that we're led to be in. Uh, I think it's important for us to, as, you know, as God's ambassadors, as Christ's ambassadors, to represent him wherever we are and in, in, in whatever we do. Um, to me, I think it's important as as both a believer and as somebody who believes that you know, the, the kingdom of God is not just something that's far off in the future for heaven, but the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is among us. And, and Jesus uh, was crucified and he said it is finished. And so as as members of the church, as citizens of his kingdom, our job is to represent his ethics and morals in in this world. And uh, so the way that we do that and then that's, you know, that becomes a highly individualized and depends on your talents and your bent and, and all of those things. Um, you know, for me, I don't get, I don't get real involved in electoral politics. That's not my thing, but I do think it's important to push back against the, the evil that is perpetrated by the state and that evil's not hard to see. We see it in the wars. we see it in, the incarceration levels. We see it in the, the way the government debases our money and ruins our, uh, you know, our standard of living. All of these things are, are antichrist to use a uh, uh, Christian terms. And, and I think, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people that listen that aren't believers at all and, and scoff at Christianity that, you know, that's fine. That's, I think you can still look at it in the same context, you know, it, Take the spirituality out of it and just look at it as a purely moral, ethical, philosophical thing. The the government is objectively evil. <laughs> right. What it does is objectively evil, and I think as as uh, decent human beings, it's our job to push back against that and mitigate that as much as we can, however we can.
0: Uh, yeah, uh, and how do we? What what kind of response have you gotten? you know there's that viewpoint where a lot of libertarians and again I'm not criticizing who are who are very uh secular and very dismissive or just not interested in uh Christianity but what has have you had any uh of a positive response to your uh these types of things whether on godarchy or or something else from libertarians who are not christian what has worked in maybe uh, helping them understand things a little better.
1: I think for, for me, it's been very positive. I actually did a, I did an episode of my podcast, a uh, fireside chat with an atheist. And I had a, a, a Alan Mosley. Some people might be familiar with Alan. Yep. He does the, uh, the um, it's too late is his, his show. And, and we had a, you know, we had a real honest talk about it. And, and I think that, I think that when there's mutual respect, it's not a problem and uh, i i'm very respectful of people who are not believers and i went through about a 5 year period where i completely rejected my own faith i tried to be an atheist i was the world's worst, worst atheist but i gave it a shot um, but i understand i understand the skepticism i understand why it's hard for people to believe and and i'm i'm not wired to you know beat you over the head and tell you you're going to hell uh, so i try to show that respect all i ask in return is that respect back and i think most people that that i know that i'm close to give me that respect and they might not understand my faith but they they can respect that you know it's coming from a place of sincerity and it's coming from uh, uh you know i can i can argue i can argue my faith in in a way that i think is compelling i may not sway somebody but i'm not stupid where i get really frustrated is when you get the just the dismissive oh you're talking to your sky god you know that kind of ridiculousness um and and i honestly my the way i typically deal with those people is just to ignore them because i'm not going to change their mind and and we obviously if you're gonna make fun of me we don't really have any we don't don't have have any common ground I think the the hardest hurdle to overcome for a lot of folks and, and this is the legitimate intellectual hurdle is I think a lot of people view Christianity um and and religion in general as just another hierarchy. Right. And another way of creating rules and and I understand that and and I have a lot of my own problems with the institutional church and so you know I, you'll find me in agreement with a lot of those things. Um I think I try to explain to people that you know, ultimately it comes down to Mm self-ownership and, and God has given us autonomy and he's given us, uh, you know, the the ability to choose and to reason. And so God, if God's going to respect our ability to choose or reject him, then I have to respect that in other people. And I think that creates a, a way to help them understand that, you know, this is not just another hierarchy. If it, if it is, I mean, we all have there's hierarchies everywhere. It is voluntary, though. That's right. the difference. And and I choose to submit myself to the authority of Christ. I could tomorrow wake up and unchoose it. You know, I choose to uh, be part of my church and and submit to the leadership of our church. Um, but nobody's making me do that. And I have the ability to, to, and so that's the ultimate use of self ownership. I have the ultimate decision making of of what authority I want to place myself under. That's the difference between the a religion and the government. The government doesn't give you that option. You know, I have no opt out. Yeah. Um, if I if I decide I'm not going to pay my taxes, somebody's going to come and, and haul me off to jail. You know, if I decide I'm not going to follow the rules, somebody's going to come after me with a gun. And, and so I try to make that distinction. I think that's helped a lot of folks uh, that I've talked to that aren't believers kind of kind of get past that. Well, it's just more rules. It's just another hierarchy. And,
0: and I've had some uh, Christians uh, dispute the concept of self-ownership with me yeah. because, oh, God, you know, we belong to God. God owns everything. And the way I uh, respond to that is, is, well, I kind of agree with you that um i don't really own own myself but god gave me a 99 year lease on this right. body and and my faculties uh or you could even say an eternal lease on it and uh the question is not you know do we own ourselves but who else would be qualified to own us or direct us or uh, anything like that so
1: right right that's a, that's a good way to to explain it and then there's you know I guess we probably ought to address the elephant in the room. There are there are strains of theology that that kind of reject the idea of free will. Yeah. And uh, a lot of my a lot of my political, ethical, moral framework is built on the idea of free will. So, you know, folks that that are really hardcore reformed theologians, we're going to have some disputes on that and, you know, we can have those disputes, I guess. Um, you know, that, that's just, that's the nature, nature of the beast. But I think you're right. And I think if you look at, you know, you look at Genesis when, when God created humankind, uh, he gave us dominion and, uh, that's, it's kind of a delegation of authority. That's kind of the way I look at it. And maybe, maybe that's coming from my political science constitution, uh, orientation, but, you know, we, when, when you have powers, you can delegate those powers and delegate those authorities to other, uh, other parties. God basically delegated authority over ourselves to us. Right. And, uh, and, and so you look at it that way, we have full control. He could take it back. There's no yeah. doubt about that. He is the ultimate owner. He is the sovereign. But, um, but like you said, it's, it's almost like we have a lease and we do have, we do have that control. And, um, uh, and, and like you said, nobody else has that, that right to control us. And, and well, at least I don't think so. Apparently some people disagree with that. <laughs> There's right. a, lot of, a lot of people out there that think that they have the right to control what, what I do. But.
0: Uh, speaking of people who think they have the right to, to control what people do, uh, how should, how do you think churches and congregations should respond to the the COVID bans on, yeah. on meeting?
1: That's, that's tough. Um. You know, I'm I'm kind of a uh, I've have, I've have a real hard time, time answering this question to be honest with you because it comes down to what you believe about COVID, and I recognize that there is a a wide range of beliefs about about the virus from uh, you know it's as deadly as the bubonic plague and we're all going to die. Uh, it ranges from that extreme to it's not even a real thing and doesn't exist. Um, and so how do you contextualize that into a policy? I don't know. I mean, I kind of fall in the middle. Um, I, I'm, I'm certainly not convinced that, uh, you know, it's the, the worst thing ever in the history of the world. I'm also bristle a little bit when people say, well, it's just the flu. Um, so how does the church respond to that? You know, uh, and I, it, you have to kind of try to pull back and say, OK, what would we do in the absence of government mandates? You know, and it's hard to do because we have the government mandates. There's there's a part of us, I think, as libertarians that bristle at being told what to do. Uh, and I'm definitely like that. Um, and so you kind of have to try to separate that out and say, what is the the best policy in If a pastor or a, uh, you know, a leadership body feels like that the best thing to do is to meet, then I think they should meet. And if uh, if folks feel like that that would be detrimental to the congregation because of the possibility of spread, then I think it's fair to say we're not going to meet in person. Um, I don't think the government should have any say in it whatsoever. And, and, you know, clearly there's a lot of hypocrisy here because I can go to, I actually just saw this article, they haven't read it yet, but apparently somebody had church at Walmart, (laughs) which I thought was amazing, which was amazingly good idea, you know, because their point being, well, if it's safe to be at Walmart, then we'll just have church here. Uh, I think the government mandates are absurd. Uh, I think there is room for caution and with individual congregations or or church bodies, depending on where they are, what the situation is in in their area. and and it should be left to like everything up to uh, you know a decentralized decision making
0: right and i think we should also um uh, examine our own motives it, you know if uh, if uh, uh, a congregation says hey we're going to defy the the governor and, and still meet is it because we hate the governor because he's a democrat uh, um, <laughs> All right. uh, and, or because we don't want to we just don't want to wear masks or is it because we really want to come together and worship and we're willing to pay the 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 price to um possibly get you know in trouble uh for breaking that um yeah. i think sometimes we can do the right thing for the for the r- wrong reasons so right
1: it's the same thing with masks you know i mean it, you know the the broader debate about masks and oh my gosh i mean just the the I, who would have ever thought that masks would create this huge division in society? But, I mean, you know people are fighting over it. and and I've seen libertarians attacking other libertarians because the, you know they suggested that maybe we should wear a mask. Oh, they're you know, it's like, oh my gosh., yeah. it's 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 a little bit wearisome. I mean, for me, the mask getting the hill I'm willing to die on. Now, when, when, when we start talking about, I'm absolutely not going to do something, it's when they roll out this vaccine here in a couple of months that's not been tested. <laughs> right, uh, I'm not going to have that injected in my body. I'll just tell you that right now. That hill I'm willing to die on. The mask hill is like,
0: eh. Yeah. So what can uh, those of us, like the 10th Amendment Center, the Mises Caucus, um, how should we look at this COVID thing? Do you think it's... I, I told my wife, I said, I think we're they're gonna be making us wear masks a year from now. i I don't think it's I don't think it they're gonna lift these restrictions anytime soon. Is there are there things that we should be doing to um, encourage a splintering of of the authority over this? Is there any way uh, to do that? Yeah, you know, my normal, my normal
1: answer and it, it almost always works is the is the standard decentralization, you know to to, um, to get rid of the top-down authority as much as, po- as possible and bring it down to more local levels. Uh, unfortunately, it seems like all the local levels are following along with the upper levels. so um, you know th- there just seems to be, be very little resistance to it and, and I'll be honest with you. I don't have a lot of good answers for the COVID thing. And and quite frankly, it depresses me. Um, It's, it has, it is one of those things that makes you realize um, how far we are from Liberty because Mm -hmm. most people are not at all interested, especially when it comes to, Oh my God, I think this is going to hurt me. And um, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think we, we've, we've got to push back, Again, it becomes difficult because it very quickly, very quickly pivots away from a political argument, because I think the political argument is pretty easily, pretty easy. Uh, I should have the right to choose whether or not to wear a mask, whether or not to ingest, inject myself with a, a various thing. You know, I should be able to handle things for my health, but it very quickly pivots to, well, the mask isn't for you, it's for me. Right. And, and it very then it turns into a medical argument. Well, masks work or they don't work? And then we have this study and we have this study. And, and I just don't know how to deal with that. I still think that ultimately we have to continue to resist the temptation for top-down solutions that we always need to try to push at the at the most local level possible. And I think those of us that are involved in activism, I think the most effective thing that we can do is, is be present and, and push back at the local level. And, you know, be involved with our city councils and our county councils, our mayors, um, and 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 try to push back against these mandates at that level, because in a lot of places, that's where it's coming from. I mean, here in Florida, we don't have a statewide mass mandate, but I think virtually every county has implemented one. Right. So, um, you know again as as with most things we have more control and more clout at the local level we can get more done with fewer people at the local level so i think we should probably try to f- to focus our efforts there as, as much as possible and uh you know tailor our strategy to what's going on on the ground um and and again avoid the top down stuff but it, it's, a, it's a hard one because everybody seems on board with You know, we're going to we're going to keep everything locked down until a virus is cured, which is an absurd thing.
0: Yeah, I I think that you're right. I think that this, um, you know, even by April or May, I think the argument over whether uh, the average American or the major great majority of Americans, whether they uh, favor, you know, the whole liberty versus security debate. Well, if if there was any doubt, we have the answer to that. Yeah. Question now. For sure. Yeah. Um, I, am going to let you go here in a second, but I wanted to ask, uh, one more thing. Uh, what's give us an update on what's going on at the 10th amendment center. Uh, are you guys planning any new initiatives or, um, uh, uh, issues, uh, coalitions or anything like that here in the next, uh, say 18 months or so?
1: Well, I think, you know, right now we're kind of in a, in a downtime, uh, this is typical, this time of year, slow for us. We'll really start kind of ramping things up um, starting in September and in October, as uh, we start gearing up, most state legislatures are in session uh, starting in January. Uh, Who knows what it's going to be this year, you know, with the COVID thing. I mean, that could, that could create some, some strange things, but I I think that um, one of the things that obviously we have a lot of fertile ground now for, um, pushing back against the uh, the police state and the surveillance state, so we're definitely going to continue to seize on that. And unfortunately, and we're well positioned for that because we've been involved, uh, we've been coalition building, especially in surveillance issues for years. And so uh, we're just going to continue to to seize the momentum that's there and, and work on, uh, you know, limiting surveillance technology, limiting police militarization. I think there's going to be some good opportunity uh to uh continue pushing back against asset forfeiture you know that the asset forfeiture reform is something that was kind of uh starting to percolate pretty strongly over the last 2 years uh, i think there'll there'll be more appetite for that uh state uh initiatives state processes for uh dealing with police brutality that avoid the uh qualified immunity that's obviously going to be top tier um Last year, uh, we had a really, we were starting to get some really good momentum on uh, a bill called defend the guard, which was, uh, designed to basically prohibit the deployment of national guard troops into combat overseas without a, uh, actual declaration of war. And, uh, I think it was introduced in almost a dozen States last year, but then COVID killed it.
0: Right.
1: Um, so, you know, we'll if we can get past the covid stuff then uh, you know hopefully we can to t- get back on that because i think that's just a crucial key thing and then of course you know uh, who knows what's going to happen with the presidential election and that could change the dynamics a lot um right now the uh, the people on the right aren't really interested in limiting the government you know you're you're I don't, when i say right i'm talking about your standard mainstream republican conservative because right. you know Uh, Their president has the pen and the phone now, so they're all for executive orders and all of this garbage that's being being done. But uh, if Biden wins, then uh, then that'll pivot. And so, you know, we we have to be really fluid with our strategy at the 10th Amendment Center because we kind of have to move with the uh, with the political winds in, in terms of how we build coalitions and. Um, and, and where we can find the momentum because I guarantee you as soon as the left has control of Washington DC the interest that they've had in localism it'll it'll disappear so uh, that, that's the sad reality but I think I think really police and surveillance are probably going to be the, the top big issues we're going to continue um, we're going to continue pushing for the sound money uh, and that's also something that we've seen a lot of interest in over the last year or two and you know as as the Federal Reserve continues to create money out of thin air and Ah, uh, Washington D.C. spends trillions of dollars it doesn't have every day. Uh, the, there's going to be an appetite for that as well. So,
0: tell people how they can interact with and support 10th Amendment Center, and then plug whatever whatever you want to plug.
1: Yeah, so 10thAmendmentCenter.com is where we are. Uh, you will find on the front page there uh, our article, uh, most recent articles always worth checking out. Always recommend people go to the blog because that's where you'll find uh, kind of more granular, granular things about what's going on in terms of our legislative initiatives, uh, what bills are being passed, considered, that kind of thing. So uh, make sure you check all that out. If you're interested in supporting what we're doing, you can be a member of the Tenth Amendment Center for as little as like two bucks a day, two bucks a month, uh, which is absurd. But, you know, we get we get enough people with two bucks a month and that helps pay the bills. So, uh, we appreciate all the support that's out there for what we're doing. And, uh, so check that out. 10th amendment center.com. It's all spelled out. Um, if you are interested in this whole idea of Christianity and, uh, and the state check out Godarchy.org. You can subscribe to the Godarchy podcast. And, uh, one of the things that I'm hoping to do over the next, uh, few months is, is, uh, I've had some personal transition moved and all this stuff going on in my own personal life and have kind of gotten away from doing a lot of writing over at Godarchy. So I'm going to try to, to be more disciplined about getting a post up every, every week or so, and, uh, getting a little bit more into some of the, some of those, uh, moral and philosophical discussions. So that's over there.
0: Great. Um, I, I really appreciate your time and your perspective on this and, uh, uh, yeah, Mike Maharry, thanks for coming on Decentralized Revolution.
1: Hey, thanks for having a Decentralized Revolution, and yep. and thanks for everything you guys are doing over at the, at the Mises Caucus. It's uh, you guys are doing great work, and it's uh, you know it's 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 cool because it's not just uh, it, it's not just political talk or memes. You guys are doing some really good practical boots on the ground activism, and and I commend you guys for what you're doing.
0: Thanks, and of course, Tenth Amendment Center is one of our main models that we look to. So, uh, I really appreciate the the support, the you know, non-monetary, non you know, just uh, general moral support and ideas uh, that we've gotten from you guys.
1: Yeah, appreciate that.
0: Okay, bye bye. Bye. All right, there you have it. I'd like to thank Mike Meharry for his time and wisdom and i'd also like to thank all of his colleagues at the 10th amendment center and shift gold for giving him a platform for all that work he does i'd also like to thank dave versus goliath for all the music you hear on decentralized revolution and of course i always like to thank everyone who gives to mises pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares rates reviews and subscribes to decentralized revolution thanks for listening and we'll see you next time